Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, where we like to take everything that is wrong with marriage and all the weird teachings about marriage and strip them away so that marriage can be bare and Jesus-centered and back to what God intended. And we are here for another Thursday podcast. I have brought my husband Keith on for our first segment. We have some fun stuff for you today. We're going to go all over the place, look at some ways people can mess up research, look at some reader questions, but I want to start with just introducing a new series that's going to be starting on the blog this month. We're not going to talk about it too much today. I'm just going to give you a little sneak peek, but we want to take this month and do something which I think is actually going to be kind of funny. Mm -hmm. I want to take a romp through sex advice over the ages and how we have seen sex in different periods of history. (laughs) We have this wonderful book from the 70s called How to Get More Out of Sex, and we will be looking at some (laughs) wonderful quotes from this when we get to the 70s. It looks so good. This is just a preview. We're not going to do this today. Those of you listening will not not experience the full wonderfulness of this 70s book. The 70s look. Yes. The glasses, Um, the hair, the suit, everything. But we will just be looking at how people's ideas of libido and sexual desire and pleasure have changed over the ages. We're going to start with antiquity Mm -hmm. next week. We're going to... Now, antiquity... That's a lot. You could have Indian, subcontinent, China, Japan. We're going to focus mostly on the Roman era. Because that's where the Bible... Yeah, because just to give us more context for when Paul was writing the epistles, when Jesus walked the earth. So we're going to look more in the Roman era. We're going to look at 10 neat things about antiquity and sex that you may not have known. And maybe didn't want to know. (laughs) Including some things with bees and Cleopatra. And I'm just going to leave it at that. You can join the blog for that next week. But there's one aspect that I did want to talk about today. So just a sneak peek, which is that one of the things that Connor has found as he's been researching this for me is that sex in Roman times was less about gender Mm -hmm. and more about the power position. Oh, wow. Okay, so as long as you were the one who was doing the penetrating Mm -hmm. and not the one who was being penetrated, that still counted as you being very masculine. So it didn't matter what gender the Mm -hmm. other person was, so to speak. Um, Sorry for getting a little bit, if people find this a weird thing to talk about, but I just find this interesting that the gender aspect wasn't important as long as you always were the power person. The person who was doing the action rather than the person who's getting the action done to you. Mm. That still made you masculine. And I found that kind of an interesting thing to think about and that sex was less about a couple joining together as it was about a person acting upon another person in a power relationship. You know, and I wonder how much we do that. And in fact, I'm going to call that this is a new thing we're starting. I'm going to call that our false teaching of the week. First false teaching of the week, that power is supposed to be a component of our marriage and sex lives. Mm. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking, what does power have to do with sex? Because it's not, mm-hmm. you know, you're supposed to surrender to each other. It's We've talked about this before. There's an inherent vulnerability uh, in being the woman because, you know, your body is actually physically entered during sex, during mm-hmm. sexual intercourse. But... You know, that's not a power thing. It shouldn't be a power thing. And power Mm -hmm. is going to corrupt all the wonderful mutual intimacy you're supposed to experience in that. Yeah. And in fact, I actually think, I have a theory about this, that the point of sex, what makes it really sexy, really, what gets people going is actually that vulnerability, that Mm -hmm. intense vulnerability. Because Mm -hmm. when when you really bear yourself with each other, Mm -hmm. then that fuels sexual desire, it fuels sexual response. We know in women it's highly correlated with orgasm. That's why having a closer marriage makes you more sexually responsive, right? But when we take sex away from intimacy and we still want that response, then the only kind of vulnerability that's left is physical vulnerability. Mm, And so I think that's why we get some of these weird fetish stuff going on about power in the bedroom because we don't have that emotional vulnerability. And so you Um, have to replace it with some other kind of vulnerability. And I think guys understand the emotional vulnerability aspect of sex. People think that men don't. But Mm -hmm. I think that's why guys, why sex is so important to guys. Because it's a way that they can feel emotionally vulnerable and close to their wives. And Mm -hmm. when when a, when a, a man initiates 
sex with his wife and she responds to him and they're, they're together, that's a very affirming thing for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it is emotionally vulnerable to put yourself out there and potentially be turned down. And I think guys get that. I think most men understand that sex is more than just physical. It is emotional. Yeah. and But this whole idea that we need power in our relationships oh, yeah. is something which is... Well, and that's terrible because that's what happens is it's like... Sex becomes about, this is something I have the right to in our marriage now, so mm-hmm. I expect it from you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's terrible. And that's one of the big teachings that your book, uh, The Great Sex Rescue, showed is so damaging to relationships. And yet it's the very thing that we hear taught in the church all the time. And mm-hmm. it's about the whole submitting to your husband. You know, you need to submit to your husband. This is a need of his. And part of your wifely submission is to satisfy this need of his. And that's such a terribly one-sided, power-based uh, way of looking at sex, and it's not what sex was intended to be. Yeah, or marriage either too. Or marriage, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we're talking about antiquity, right? We're talking about the Romans, the Ephesians verses where it says, you know, wives submit to your husbands, which it doesn't actually say in the Greek. You talked about that in your podcast yeah. before, right? That it says submit to each other in, in out of reverence out of for reverence. Christ. Mm-hmm. Wives to your husbands. Wives to your husbands is a clause that's added on to the main sentences of you are supposed to both submit to each other, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, whenever we start talking about submission, it, it like the baseline is it's mutual submission. That's yeah. always the way I've read that verse. But we talk about this, this thing about wives submitting to their husbands. But if you think about the time that was written in Roman times, wives submit to your husbands, it's kind of like a throw, not a throwaway, but it's kind of like a, it's like a little clause he just puts in there because, well, yeah, wives are going to be submitting to their husbands because wives have no rights. Mm-hmm. They're the property of their husbands. Of course, they're going to be submitting to their husbands. It's not like some revolutionary thing. But you hear people talking these days like, this is revolutionary because we're all about feminism now and our rights and women uh, are all about that and reject that and go with God's way, which is where you don't demand your rights. But mm-hmm. instead, let the husband demand his right to have your body whenever he wants. And, yeah. and they don't see that, that there's, you know, it's, you can't say to the women, don't demand your rights. And to the guys, it's okay to demand your rights. That, that's not balanced. That's not Christian. That's not the way it's meant to be. The truly revolutionary verse in that section was 521. Mm-hmm. Submit to each other. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, a Roman leader in his household saying to him, you and your wife are supposed to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Yeah. That would be revolutionary. Yeah. Um, and that's the yeah. whole context it's supposed to be. And I think when people pick those little tiny verses and they take them out of context, then they can give a very distorted version of what God's plan yeah. is. Yeah, and I think the problem with when we talk about marriage is that we focus only on the marriage verses and we forget mm-hmm. that the rest of the Bible also applies to the marriage yeah, relationship. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and in this case, like our Bibles start at 522. Like it's like a section mm-hmm. and then there's like a instructions for households. And then 522 starts with wives submit to your husbands. Yeah. And it's like, it's the same sentence as 21. Like why do we divide it? Yeah, that? in fact, the verb is in verse 21, yeah, not like in verse Yeah, it's the 22. same sentence. We divide it in the middle of yeah. a sentence. It's like saying Jesus said to you, uh, you've said it. You've said it. Heard it said. Do not murder, and then teaching a whole sermon on that without saying the rest of the verse. Like, yeah. like you got to say the rest of the verse. That's the point of it. Yeah. So, so taking it in the immediate context, it's not meaning what people are making it mean out there. Yeah. But then take the rest of the Bible, because this is the reason that I don't believe in a hierarchical version of marriage. I don't believe that the man is in charge and the woman needs to. To obey the man, I don't believe that because which I'm very grateful. Yeah, and I've ne- and I've never believed that, I'm, but I've been taught that by really well-meaning people that I need to step up to the plate and be a good Christian husband. You yeah, know? and so I've had a lot of guilt and a lot of had to d- process a lot of that stuff. But I've yeah. never, never ever felt that. And the reason is this: because I do know that Jesus said, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you," mm-hmm. and I would never, ever want to be in a relationship where the other person was ultimately in charge. I see this happening all the time. There's, there's two big ways that people make this sound palatable. And the first one is the 51% thing. Yeah, Emerson Egrich uses that in Love and Respect. Yeah, yeah. He, he does. But yeah. everyone does that. But, mm-hmm. like, I think that's pretty much a common thing. I'm only 51%. It's not 100%, 0%. It's 51%. And that's what they do to make it more palatable. But here's the deal. I would never subject myself to a relationship where the other person had 51% of the control because we all know 51% is the same as 100%. If you have the controlling shares, you have the control. End of story. The second thing is this. I've heard people say, and the same kind of thing, it's the 51% thing. He just makes the decision in a tiebreaker situation. It's not Mm -hmm. like he gets to make all the decisions. He only makes the decision in a tiebreaker. And they make it sound like that's something different than he gets to make all the decisions. But the problem is this. 
is if I want to make it a tiebreaker situation, I just disagree with you. Yeah. And now it's a tiebreaker situation, and I get to make the decision that this is what we're going to do. Now, I'm not saying men do that, or, or any yeah. man would want to do that, and I don't think the most Christian men do, but it is a potential that that could happen. And so for that reason, I would never subject myself to a relationship mm-hmm. where I'm, the other person has 51% of the power. Yeah, because you'd, never, not, you'd never be in a business relationship. I would never where... do that. I would never want anyone to do that to me. And so why would I want to do that to somebody else. And yeah. so I, I would just never want to do that to Sheila. So I've never done that. that that's always the way I think. This is just the golden rule. Right. Okay. So you said there were two points. That was your first one. What's your second one? So the second one is the, the whole idea of that I see argued all the time is why would a woman not want to submit to a man like is described in Ephesians? So basically it says, we're not telling you to submit to somebody who's mean and bad and, and controls you. Mm-hmm. We're saying submit to a godly husband. I hear this all the time. So like people say, you know, you're making these arguments, but it's not biblical. Biblical is that women submit and men live godly, selfless Christian lives. That makes sense. And that's why it works. And that's why women believe it because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, he's going to be a godly Christian man. He's going to love me like Christ loves the church. He actually has the harder job. I've just got to submit. He's actually got to love me like Christ. Yeah. I hear this stuff all the time. But the problem is this, is I've seen time and time and time again that we walk into this with the concept of I'm doing it because he's a godly Christian man who's going to love me like Christ loves the church. And then the goalposts move. And he's not a godly Christian man and he's doing things that are not harmful. He's drinking or straying or other things. And the teaching does not change. It's not like they stop and go, oh, wait a minute. We said to you, you should submit to him because he's a godly Christian man. And now he's not acting like that. So you no longer need to submit. They don't say that. They say, Mm -hmm. you still need to submit. So don't tell me one thing, get me hooked, and then tell me something different. Don't do that to me. Because here's the big thing. If the argument is true, if the argument is true that what woman wouldn't want to submit to a man like that? And if you honestly think women should submit, and if you honestly think there's this big crisis where women aren't respecting and submitting to their husbands enough, if you honestly think that, Mm -hmm. by your own argument, what you should do is shut up about women submitting and love women like Christ loves the church. Because according to your own argument, they'll naturally want to submit to you. So it really bothers me when people preach about women submitting being the key. It bothers me so much. It's funny, too, because when you look at the Ephesians 5 passage, like, there's such a short verse for women. Yeah. You know, and then there's so much more for men. And yet we tend to concentrate on the verses for for women instead of the verses for men. Well, I I love how in the English Bible, it begins and ends with a command to women. Like, yeah. And I think you talked about this in another podcast. Yeah. With, uh, what was that that theologian? With Cynthia Westfall. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll link to that because we don't go into that again. But it starts in the English Bibles. We put it as a command to women that starts and ends it. But in neither case in the Greek is there actually a command there. No. (laughs) And there's a huge section in the middle where where Paul is commanding husbands to behave a certain way because he's trying to turn the culture on its head, right? Because the whole point of Jesus is not who's in charge. Jesus said, he called his disciples together and said, you know that among the Gentiles, they lord it over each other and their officials exercise authority over each other. Not Not so with with you. you. Jesus is not about power. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That is our role as Christians. It's to serve each other. As soon as the person starts standing up and saying someone else should be in charge of someone else, and that is God's plan, I just hear Jesus saying, not so among you. Mm -hmm. That's what I hear every time someone talks about power dynamics in the church. It drives me crazy yeah matthew 20 verses 25 to 28 i believe yeah, that's right and you know tomorrow's good friday yeah right like that is what this is about the, the son whole of man point of jesus coming was to show us the way yeah to turn power on its head that it yeah. isn't about trying to exercise power it is about learning how to serve and you know i like what you said about the golden rule too, like how we want to treat others the way we want to be treated but i wonder if one of the reasons that so much evangelical literature talks so much about gender differences mm, yeah. and how like men are like this and women are like this yeah. and men do this no, and women yeah, do this. I know, I know where you're going with this, yeah. Is so that yeah. then 
men can think, well, sure, I wouldn't want to be treated like yes. that. But I'm a guy. She's yeah. a woman. She won't mind. Exactly. And this, we talked about this before, right? Like this, I, this is why I think they do that, right? Because mm-hmm. the natural, as I'm talking about this, you know, I'm sure guys are going, hey, yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to be like that either. But the natural inkling, they're going, but, 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 but men are this way and women are that way. That's yeah. what comes up. And that's why that teaching is so prevalent is because we're trying to make women something other. You get uh, accused all the time by people. Mm-hmm. They don't ever quote you or link to anything saying you, but they say things like, she doesn't believe in gender differences. Mm-hmm. People say that about you all the time in their little statements or whatever. They don't link anything. They don't quote anything verbatim. They just yeah. say that that's the case. We believe in gender differences. Look at us. We're yes. different. <laughs> you know, Men and women are different. Men and women process things differently in general. What we have a problem with is when you say that men are all like this and women are all like that. Mm-hmm. And there's two problems with that. The first problem is that if you're a man who has a trait that's more feminine, I'm mm-hmm. putting air quotes up for you who are listening to the podcast, or if you're a woman who has traits that are more masculine, mm-hmm. you feel like something's wrong with you. And that's just the way God made you and don't feel bad about it. Right? Yeah. Because there are tendencies and trends, but that doesn't mean everyone's like yeah. that. That's the first thing. But that's not what we're talking about today. The mm-hmm. second thing is, is that it allows us to start thinking that we are actually different species. Yes. And that's horribly damaging because then it allows for us to start thinking of each other as not the same as us. So I naturally would not want to rule over you because I wouldn't want to be ruled over. Oh, but you're a woman. So that's okay. <laughs> No, but, yeah. but seriously, and, that's what's but, going and, on. But that's what, and that's what happened with racism as well, right? Absolutely. Like that's why we see other races as the other, because then we can do things to yes. them that we would never want done to ourselves because, well, they're not like us. Yes. And that's why the it's first... It's been shown time and time again that the, the yeah. first sta- step to committing atrocities is to dehumanize your yeah. eventual victim. Yeah, and objectify and dehumanize and see them as the other. Mm-hmm. And that's why... Paul said, mm-hmm. in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor, nor free, free, male nor female, female, because we are all one. We are all one. And we are that's, all people. We're and, all humans. And that is what the cross accomplished. Yeah. To, to, tore down yeah. the wall of enmity yeah. between the two, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so good. And so now I am going to ask you to leave. Okay. And we are going to bring Connor and Rebecca on, and we are going to look at some of the ways that the evangelical church has misused science and misused and misunderstood research to bolster <laughs> this whole idea of gender differences because we just don't do science well. Yeah. So here I, we go. I think, I think we should call it gender dichotomy. Yeah, gender dichotomy gender or gender essentialism. Yeah, yeah gender essentialism. Yeah. Yeah. And so All here right. we go. Well, thanks, guys. Now I want to change direction for a minute. Yes. Right. And I want to talk about how evangelicals can handle science well. Yes. Because we got into an mm-hmm. interesting conversation last week where we looked at some sermons by Emerson Egrich from Houston's First Baptist and some of the arguments that Emerson Egrich was making regarding how men handle anger and stonewalling. The bigger point that we were making was how he was looking at abuse mm-hmm. and how he was treating abuse. But something that came up again and again in the comments was his statement that 85% of men stonewall. stonewall. Yeah. And so you looked this up afterwards yeah. and you had kind of a fun time. Yeah, oh boy, did I. So yeah, it was, it was <laughs> what I saw was a lot of the comments were about his claim that in a conflict, men's heartbeats rise up to 99 beats per minute and they are in warrior mode and they need to walk away because otherwise they know they can just lose it. And a lot of people saying, you know, as a woman reading this, my heartbeat shot up to 99 <laughs> beats per minute and I was right. angry. Right. And so... In that post and in that podcast where we were specifically looking at how his teachings related to abuse and stuff like that, I didn't really get into the backing of the research that he was claiming to cite or Mm -hmm. anything like that because I figured, you know what, not relevant to the point that I'm trying to make here, but I was skeptical. And so I decided to do some looking and it took a lot of looking, which let me say is the first problem with when you are trying to use science. The point of referencing work is to make it really clear and easy for people to see where you got the information from and then to go find that information and see it in its full context because that's so important for the discourse Mm -hmm. and for future research. And so when I'm looking at these claims that he's making about heartbeats and about stonewalling and I am struggling to figure out where he is getting this information from, Mm -hmm. that's a problem. But... After some looking, I finally discerned 
that what he was talking about with all of those points is, and he talks about it in a bunch of blog posts, in his media appearances on radio shows, TV shows, and he talks about it in his book, all those he's referring to research done by the John Gottman Institute. Mm-hmm. which he'll say, you know, research done by the University of Washington, studied uh, over 2,000 couples for 20 years. And what he's leaving out there is he's referring to John Gottman's marriage lab, which okay. has been running for about 30 years now and has within it contained a bunch of different studies of different married couples over different periods of time, sometimes longitudinal studies over four years, sometimes just cohort studies. Cohort studies. And so it's not like there's this one big study that has mm-hmm. all these findings that he's basing what he found on. Some of the studies had 85 couples. And so that right there is misleading. But I took a look and I'm like, okay, I figured out where he's going And we just want to say, before you even get into this, we actually like the John Gottman. Yeah, we love Gottman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all love Gottman. <laughs> he does, his, his yeah. book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, was our um, secular control book for the Great Sex Rescue. It's a very, very good book. I highly recommend it. Every single so, one of my psychology professors who dealt with social psychology or family psychology of any sort... Just, we always read at least two Gottman articles in every class. Yeah. Okay. So with that. So looking at his blog posts and his speeches and all of these things, he never made any actual citation of where he got the information from. But by looking to the book, I could see, okay, so here's what he's referencing from the Gottman Institute. It's not any of his papers or any of his research. It's one of his earlier books that John Gottman wrote. Between that and an infographic I found on the website... I was able to see all of the figures it seems like Emerson is working with. And in particular, the 85% of men will stonewall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just preface this by saying I got so mad when I saw this. Okay, Sheila here. I'm just going to have Katie put these in because we should have had these quotes ready when we were doing um, our science bit, but we didn't. So here is what Emerson Egrich says on page 60 of Love and Respect. So this is his book, and he says, according to John Gottman's extensive research, 85% of husbands eventually stonewall their wives during conflict. Okay, now let's listen to two clips, one of Gottman and one of Emerson. So here is John Gottman explaining that 85%. So when we interview people of a stonewall, 85% of our stonewallers in heterosexual couples are guys. And here is Emerson Egrich explaining the 85%. When men are in a conflict, 85% of them, 85, think bell curve, 15% don't, my mother withdrew, but 85% of the men withdraw and stonewall. He mentions the 85% of men stonewall in his book, and he mentions it in his, one of his blog posts. And he does not cite in either of those situations, though he does cite John Gottman's book, he doesn't cite it for the 85% part. You go into the book and you look at the areas that he's citing, none of them say anything about the heart rate, anything about the 85%. They're just saying vicious cycles will happen, vicious cycles are bad, you should break out of vicious cycles. There's an infographic on the John Gottman Institute website where in one part it says 85% of stonewallers are men. Yep. Now let me repeat what it didn't say. It didn't say (laughs) 85% of men stonewall. It said 85% of stonewallers are men. In that same infographic, it cites stonewalling as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, so let's put this into perspective. 50% of of Canadians are female. Mm Mm-hmm. 50% 50% of females are not Canadian. That's right. <laughs> yes. There's yeah. a big difference There's a between big those two and statements. And that is such a simple <laughs> misinterpretation of data. Like they, they barely even cover that in a first year statistics class. Right. Because it's so, it's assumed that you know this. You can't yeah. just flip those okay. two numbers. Yes. So he is saying 85% of a men act like this. 85% of men, as he described last week, their heart rate goes, they have to remove themselves or else they're going to break yeah. out in rage. But this is not what Gottman found at all. No. What Gottman found is that 85% of people who do act like this are male. What I find almost more concerning is that <laughs> in some of his other blog posts, he says 85% of people who stonewall are male. So he does it properly sometimes. And then he flips it other times. And I just want to say 
This is why you can't trust someone based on credentials alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he likes to go by Dr. Emerson Eggrich because he has a PhD. Yeah. But if someone with a PhD is messing up a statistic like that, that is gross negligence. Yeah. Like yeah. if you have education and you're standing by your education, you should not be making literal grade nine mistakes. Whenever John Gottman talks about stonewalling, he is talking about it as something that happens in really bad struggling marriages where he can predict with 90% accuracy they are going to end in divorce or severely decreased marital satisfaction, often within four years. It is one of the primary predictors when Mm -hmm. stonewalling is present. And what's more is Emerson describes 99 beats per minute as men entering into warrior mode and everything. And John Gottman says stonewalling is what happens for someone who has a heartbeat, a resting heartbeat of like... 80 to 88 beats per minute. Stonewalling occurs when they reach 100 beats per minute. And he doesn't say anything about warrior mode, anything like that. What he does say is that higher levels of physiological arousal during conflicts between spouses is part of that indicator of divorce down the road. Mm -hmm. So if you are a man, and as Emerson describes it, your heartbeat is shooting up and your wife's heartbeat is staying calm and normal. If that is the situation you are in, that means Gottman's research actually indicates that you are responsible for deterioration in the marital quality. Yeah. Yeah. And that your marriage is, is in danger of divorce. And, and it's not a He sign. was saying that this guy was being honorable. That's yeah. what he said. And that he's in again. the 85% of normal honorable men. Which yeah. is just... Frankly, I, and I, I do want to say, I am flabbergasted to think about how someone with the amount of education that Emerson Anchorage has can possibly misunderstand Gottman's stats because they're so easy to understand. Like there's a lot of research that's very tricky to understand. This mm-hmm. is not one of them. This is simple mm-hmm. enough that you could put it on an infographic. We need to be very careful when we put ourselves in a position of teaching where we're writing marriage books, where we're writing even just blog posts, you know, doing podcasts like this, that we don't just go into it flippantly. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't see another way of... Because here's the thing. Here's, here's how I see it. There's kind of two options here. Mm-hmm. Why did Egrich just grossly misquote Gottman's research? It's either because he genuinely doesn't understand basic statistics and basic research practices. Mm-hmm. He has a PhD, and I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he does understand. Mm-hmm. I think he does understand. Mm-hmm. You know, he's had to do the work before he's been trained. There's no reason to believe he doesn't understand that 85% of stonewallers are men does not mean that 85% of men stonewall. Additionally, mm-hmm. he should have the training to understand that if John Gottman calls stonewalling one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it's probably not a sign of an honorable man. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Like, this is very basic stuff. Yeah. So there's that option that he genuinely doesn't understand, which I don't think it is, which only leads us to number two, which is that he could have understood if he tried... Mm-hmm. But he just didn't try. Mm-hmm. Instead, you're looking at the research and proof texting it to try to find something you're trying to prove. Mm-hmm. And you don't actually care what the research says. You're yeah. just trying to beef up your own agenda. And yeah. I, I just don't see any evidence that it's anything other than that. Okay, so just to make sure we're doing our due diligence, because, you know, we're going to be posting every one of the blog posts from Emerson Egrich's website that we talk about here. But here, we're just going to read the examples of the the post where he literally uses the stat both ways, which is why I think it's just gross negligence. It's not a a lack of understanding. So let's let's just read what he says. So this is the post. Why is love and respect gender specific? That's the title of the post. And he says this. Here's the first time he talks about it. For example, as a researcher, I later learned that 85% of those who withdraw and stonewall during marital conflict are the husband. Which is true. That's what Gottman found. Yes, although I will say that's also very misleading because he didn't learn it as a researcher. He read someone else's research, but that's right. Okay. But then the, the next time he says it in the same blog post, he says this. Back to the research that found 85% of men withdrew and stonewalled during conflict. I am part of the 85%. And Sarah felt unloved when I did this, and she certainly did not feel respect for me. And he goes on to talk about how withdrawing is part of the honor code. So this is basically what he was doing in the sermon. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. It's just, I love that in the same blog post, my post. research found that 85% of people who stonewell are male. So let's go back to the research that found that 85% of men stonewell. Wait a second. Um, <laughs> so no. Again, you know, one of the things that we really want from the Great Sex Rescue is to raise the bar on how evangelicals treat research. Yeah, and I'm sorry, you know, in love and respect, as Connor was looking through all of his citations, there are not many peer-reviewed citations. And even the times that he cites researchers who have peer-reviewed journal articles out there, he cites their pop psychology books. Mm -hmm. He doesn't cite the actual research. And if you have a PhD... If you are going to talk about research in a book, mm-hmm. I do think that you are obligated to actually look at the research. Yeah, mm-hmm. because there are whole chapters in his book that do not have a single citation nope. of any kind to any mm-hmm. sort of pop psychology and book, research paper, even the Bible is just completely his unfiltered what and he's he, saying. And he makes, he makes a lot of claims. Like one of the ones that, that we mentioned in The Great Sex Rescue is he says, and I'm quoting from memory here, so I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, but he says one of the reasons that people are divorcing left, right, and center here is because we have, people are trying to have two equals at the yep. top of a relationship. Yeah, they have two heads in the marriage. And, and, and that doesn't work. But he doesn't cite any no, information. He just, he just states it. Even even yeah. though what we found... And what was, many other researchers have found. And Gottman as well. Mm-hmm. Gottman found that if you have one person making decisions, even if they consult with the other person, what Gottman found is you had an 81% chance of divorce. And yeah. what we found is that you had a 6.7 times? I think it was some. It was, it was multiple times more likely to get divorced. It was somewhere yeah. around 6 around to 7 times. I think it was 6.7 times. times more likely to get divorced. Yeah. So he makes this statement, but he doesn't back it up with anything. And another thing to touch on, too, is looking through the, the research in his book. Now, the title of this blog post we just referenced, Why is Love and Respect Gender Specific? That reminds me of the source of his central idea that sets him apart from John Gottman, that love and respect are gender specific, is basically his philosophy takes John Gottman's work and then takes Shanti Feldon's research in for women only mm-hmm. and fuses the two. So mm-hmm. what he does is he says, here's what John Gottman says. And what Shanti found in her survey is that men are more likely to, like, men need more respect. But if you look at the survey question that Shanti had, first off, it's a double-barreled question, which, as you've talked about on the blog before, is not good. You can't ask two things in each yeah, answer. Said, you can you... sometimes. I do want to be very mm-hmm. clear. Yeah. You can sometimes. Mm-hmm. There are instances where it's okay. But the problem is that this is not one of those questions, yeah. and yes. it was flagged by multiple people as potentially invalid, and she even put that in her own book and yeah. didn't discard the question. Yeah. So, so she asked, would you rather be alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? And there are two problems with that. First off is that those are, to a lot of people, going to be four very different things. For me, <laughs> I would be okay with feeling disrespected. I would rather not be alone and unloved. But the thing out of that list I would like the least is to feel incompetent, unable. Yeah, inadequate. Yeah. Inadequate. That's so you would word. have chosen alone and unloved. So yeah. you would have chosen. So then Shanti would have said, oh, well, he <laughs> wants to be respected more than he wants to be loved. Because in at, feeling inadequate, that's an mm-hmm. internal evaluation. That means I don't feel good about myself. All four, all three other things are about how do other people feel about me. And yeah, I personally right. would rather feel like I at least have an internal personal integrity and I have competence and I have worth than have other people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Shanti's question, double-barreled response set that was just really inappropriate, was flagged by pilot studies as being um, hard to answer. Her own survey, survey an- analyst said this isn't a good question. Additionally, she only asked men and then she made uh, generalizations about women, which is of course a fallacy of presumption just because one person says X, the other person is not necessarily going to say Y. Mm-hmm. And that's what... Emerson based his man side of the respect equation. So what did he base the women's side on? Yeah, so that, that's to say men need respect because this survey found that men need respect and then didn't ask women how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what he says about why he knows that women need love is because the greeting card industry... Uh, <laughs> Talks more about love than it does respect in the cards, and, and uh, women mostly buy more cards. women buy cards. I mean, so the logic is infallible. It's just bulletproof. I think you could get peer reviewed with that. I. I th- <laughs> okay. And so again, this is why we're trying to raise the bar. Yes. And we're just trying to show you that just because someone has fancy letters after their name 
You don't have to trust their judgment unless they prove it to you. Yeah. And that's just what we're trying to say. You know, for so long, the average person in the pews has been t- looked down on because they don't have all the shiny bells and whistles that the, the conference speaker or even the pastor or, you know, the author or the influencer mm-hmm. has. But if we actually strip it all down and we get back to what are they actually saying, it's pretty easy to see that this particular book, the research is complete just garbage. It's just complete garbage. There's really no nice way to say it. Yeah, and the other thing that I find really dishonest, because I do think he was dishonest in the way he used Gottman, because Mm -hmm. the only good research that he cites in Love and Respect is John Gottman's. But he doesn't acknowledge the conclusions that Gottman makes. Yes, because Gottman's conclusions are all about sharing power. It's all about learning to not stonewall. Yeah, what he says is that, what Gottman says is that when couples get into these bad cycles, they get more and more gendered. Mm -hmm. They tend to act more and more in gendered ways Mm -hmm. and different. And what's helpful is, is if we stop doing that and actually come back towards the middle. Whereas what Egrich is saying is that acting in a gendered way is good. Yes. And that's not what Gottman found. It's actually antithetical to Gottman's entire premise. And Gottman has an entire chapter on why Emerson Egrich's premise in Love and Respect doesn't work. And now, no, to be fair, he doesn't name Emerson Egrich, but he talks about the premise of books like Love and Respect. Yes. Um, Yeah, I want to make one final example here. And this isn't so much about the research, but just an example of how... Emerson will take what Gottman has said in his research and turn it into something that with a very quick glance you can see is very, very different. Okay. And so what we're going to look at here, and I'm just, sorry, I'm just reading it from the laptop. When he's talking about Gottman's book, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, or when he's citing that book, he's essentially repeating what Gottman said in that part about how men shouldn't avoid conflict because it'll make things worse. Rather, they should stay with the conflict. The only thing he adds to Gottman's ideas there is that where Gottman says that you should stay through the discomfort and listen to her criticisms, which is, I don't know, I think respectful, affirming. What Emerson says is you should let her move towards you firing her venomous little darts as she comes. Oh my gosh. Is he saying that Gottman said that? No, that's Emerson's advice. He he says that citing with with just a little numerical notation, citing that page in Gottman's book, because he's talking about how men, what you should do is, you know how you would, you would die for your wife. You would take a bullet for your friend. If you were, if you were out in war, this is essentially the same thing. You're just going to take a bullet when you get into a marital conflict and you are going to walk towards her or let her move towards you while she's firing her. And again, this is not me paraphrasing. These are his actual words. Let her move towards you, firing her venomous little darts as she comes. How is that teaching men to listen to their wives with an open heart and with humility to realize that they might be in the wrong when they're leaving towels on the bed? Like, how is that? I'm sorry. Anyone who knows what we said before will know that. Okay, so the point here is that he uses Gottman's research, but he doesn't do it with intellectual honesty. Like he's using it to show what he wants it to show. And this is obviously our opinion, but mm-hmm. you are free to go back and read what he says in Love and Respect and then also read Gottman's book. We actually highly recommend that if you've read Love and Respect, you do read Gottman's book because I yeah. think it's a very good detox from Love mm-hmm. and Respect. Yes. But you you can see that he is grossly misrepresenting Gottman's research. Mm-hmm. And as someone who, you know, is currently doing research in a similar field, like I... I can only imagine how psychologically difficult it must be if you've dedicated your entire research career to helping marriages be freed from Mm -hmm. teachings like Egrich's. And you see people like that citing your work dishonestly Mm -hmm. who have PhDs, who Mm -hmm. cannot feign that they don't understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. There is no, oh, well, oopsie daisy here. Okay? Like, because if that's the case, then frankly, don't call yourself a PhD anymore. Yeah. I can't imagine what that would be like because Gottman really does seem to care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things that, yeah. that's why Gottman, that's why everyone likes Gottman for Pete's sake. Yeah. He's not just a researcher. He actually cares. He wants people to be healthy. He wants people to do well. Mm-hmm. And then people like Emerson Egrich will pick and pick apart some things that he says, misrepresent them grossly, and then use it to, you know, in sermons that enable abusive patterns in marriages. Mm-hmm. It's horrific. And this is why we need to not accept things at face value. You mm-hmm. need to question. You need to dig deeper. And frankly, if someone is 
citing a researcher, but isn't citing it in a research-friendly way where you can easily go back and find it, where you can double check what they said, and in a way that you know actually explains what the research said, not just, oh, and here's a throwaway line that makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, like we problem. need to we need to actually have some discernment okay. here. So let's remember 100 percent of poodles are dogs. But 100% of dogs are not poodles. Are not poodles. Exactly. <laughs> it's seriously not that hard. So, the evangelical church, we don't do well with science. Nope. Mm-hmm. We seem to be allergic to it. So we, we, we looked at Emerson Eggers. I want to take a little bit of a detour and talk a little bit about Shanti Felden as well. Yep. Because she has, she handles some science stuff in difficult, problematic ways. And it's, it's actually kind of funny when you look at it. Now, I want to do a whole podcast on this at some point, so I don't want to do it right now. No. But one of the things she looks at is the brain science <laughs> um, to say that men are visual and women are not. Yes. And in the 2013 edition of For Women Only, she expanded it from the original 2004 edition, and she added a lot of stuff about the brain science about how men are visual. And then she wrote a book in 2015 called through a man's eyes, which again talks about the brain science, Mm -hmm. how different areas of men's brains light up. And this is in a way that women can never possibly understand because our brains just don't react in the same way. Right. And we will address that part of it in another podcast because that's, that's a podcast of its own. But I just want to point out something that she says at the same time. After explaining all this stuff about the male brain, for instance, she says, the unique wiring of the male brain creates an instinctive pull to visually consume the image of an attractive woman. And these images can be just as alluring, whether they are live or recollected. Yes. So she's talking about the male brain and she makes a huge deal out of the fact that it's a male brain. But then she says this. Some women have this wiring too. (laughs) And if you are one who does, these revelations may not seem surprising. So it's a male brain that some women can have. Right. So she makes this huge big deal about how it's a male brain. Yeah. But then she says some women may have it. And then in For Men Only... Yeah, and for men only, in the survey that she did where she surveyed women, um, I just want to read you a question that she asked and then her note on the research that she put in herself. So she asked this, what is the frequency of how often you want to pursue having sex compared to your husband? I want it more often, less often, exactly the same, right? Normal libido question. That's not where the problem is though. Here's where she has a note. So 27% of women said more often, 45% said less often, and 28% said exactly the same. I'm rounding. And here's her note. We were interested to see that roughly 55% of women said that they wanted sex more often or exactly the same as their husbands, which means that the percent who wanted less is in the minority. Mm-hmm. However, and I love that there's a however here, However, we did not have the ability to test whether the husbands of the women answering exactly the same were in agreement with that assessment. Therefore, we decided to deal in the book primarily with the women answering less often, since it appears that the majority of men believe their wife to be in that category. So I, we just need to take a second and mm-hmm. actually think through what she's saying. So yeah. both people are describing their perspective on the marriage. Mm -hmm. Women's perception is that 45% of women have the lower libido in her nationally representative study, okay? Men's perspective was that it was actually, I forget what exactly the numbers were, but it it was that more women have a lower libido than their husbands. We're talking about perceptions with both of them. She does not have a note in the men's version that says we were not able to talk to the women who had a lower libido here and make sure that their husbands were actually telling the truth. So we only talked about the women with higher libido here. Like there is no note in the men's one. Mm -hmm. There's no note. There's only a note in the women's. There's no note in the men's one saying that we weren't able to validate with the women whose husbands said they had the exact same libido to make sure that their husbands didn't actually have the lower libido. Yeah. There's only a note for the women. And I just want to want to point out too that in for women only, she talks so much about how much men need to feel like you're emotionally involved in sex. Mm-hmm. And it's good because she does say it's not sex that men need, it's it's your emotional involvement and your enthusiasm, et cetera, et cetera, which is great. But she found that 55% of women have equal or higher libidos. And I than will men. say and she never 
ever portrayed that in her book. And I will say she did the original for men only survey after she did the for women only survey, I believe. Yeah. But she didn't update that in the 2013 edition of for women only. Right. So she, you know, I just find it really funny because in some, in some conversations that we've had, she's accused me of not believing in gender differences, but all we are trying to do in the great sex rescue is to show that there is a wide range of experiences. Yeah. And to talk about this as men do this and women do this is not helpful. Because that's literally what Shanti did here. And she literally discounted 55% of her respondent pool. Yeah. Because it didn't align with the agenda that men want sex more than women. And this is what we're wondering is when you look at science, the way that science is used in a lot of marriage books, when you look at the studies that are used in a lot of marriage books, we need to ask ourselves, are they trying to put an agenda forward? Yeah. Or are they trying to put the truth forward? Or are they trying to put the truth forward? Because here's the thing. Shanti's entire books are predicated on this idea that men want sex and only women can never understand. So the idea that mm-hmm. 55% of women have the same or a higher libido than their spouse is actually against her whole point. Mm-hmm. It actually disproves a lot of her message. Mm-hmm. And instead of grappling with it, instead of writing in for men only about how like, hey, instead of saying the majority of women say they have the higher or the same libido, so we're going to talk to men from that being the expectation, mm-hmm. she just discounts them. And she says, no, we're just going to talk about the part that's convenient. And of course, this is my opinion. This is my opinion when I'm looking at her research and reading for men only, which by the way, was a book that caused me a great deal of sadness. And I want to talk about that sometime because I mm-hmm. think that we're selling men a lot, really short. Yeah. When we have research that shows that a minority of women feel they have the lower libido, you can't just discount the majority mm-hmm. of your response pool unless you're specifically only talking about a book that's about low libido women, but that's not the point of her book. The point of her books are supposed to be to tell the opposite sex spouse what your spouse is actually thinking. And mm-hmm. how can you do that if you're willing to just boom, oh, there goes half of your sample, more yeah. than half of your sample because yeah. they didn't fit with the status quo. Now, I do want to say, just just throw this in here. You might be wondering, oh, but you didn't find those stats in The Great Sex Rescue. Yeah, our survey was not a nationally representative survey. It wasn't. Our survey was primarily of conservative Christian women who we know tend to have a suppressed libido. We know that they've been told their whole lives in general that men want sex in a way they never will, more so than Mm -hmm. your more sexually liberated secular population. And so Shanti's research, frankly, found that in the general public, most women are pretty sexual. And so frankly, if she's only trying to use these numbers for a conservative Christian audience, then she didn't even sample the right people likely. And interestingly, too, one of the things Joanna found was that if you look at women who don't believe that lust is every man's battle. Yeah, their libidos are higher. Their libidos are higher and they're actually quite similar to the nationally representative stuff that Shanti found. It's kind of interesting because Shanti did all these surveys that found that women kind of actually like sex. And then her books include a lot of the teachings that actually make it less likely that women will enjoy sex. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's just get back to proper science, okay? If yeah. you're going to cite someone's research, you need to be honest about it and say what they actually found. And of course, you know, we are, we are talking about other people's research here. And all the information we have is that they've put online. So if we have something wrong, we're happy to correct it. But yeah. from the information that we have, um, which is literally her survey with her notes and her book, it doesn't look great. And what we just want to let everyone know is that... The thing about research, which is so cool, is that it allows you to change your mind and it allows you to change your message with no shame. If you're using proper methods, if you're doing this with academic integrity, if you're doing this with the honest to goodness aim of finding truth, not pushing an agenda, and for 20 years you find X, X, every single time, X, X, X. And then you know what? Our understanding of methodology changes. Mm-hmm. You know, culture shifts a bit and you start studying it in year 21. Oh, I'm starting to see M. And then year 22 and it's like half X, half M. And then you start kind of finding M more. The proper thing to do is to then change your mind. Yeah. And that's what research lets us do. Because it lets us take ourselves out of our ideas that are just based in agenda. They're based in bias. They're based on the message we're trying to push because it's the message that best helps us personally. Mm-hmm. Right? And it allows us to step out of that and look at it from a third party perspective. Good research methodology, and, and the emphasis is on good methodology. You can, you can get a survey to show anything, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, if you do it badly enough. 
I think if we get into a culture where it's okay to change your mind, I think a lot of these issues will go away because I do feel that a lot of these authors have put themselves into these little boxes and they feel they can't change because if they change, then what happens? They lose everything. Mm -hmm. And so why don't we make it to be a culture in the church where we can proudly say, hey, I used to believe this. I now know it's wrong. And so now my job is to make sure everyone knows that this is wrong and goes towards this instead. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that would be great. Mm -hmm. And that's all we're asking of these people is to say, look at the research, look at it honestly, have some humility and have some compassion for the people who you harmed through these harmful teachings and through, frankly, bad research. It is bad research to just not talk about over half of your sample without a really good reason. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it's not a really good reason to say, well, I don't think that men agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially since the whole point is to show men things they might not know about their wives. Exactly. exactly. So that's all I have to say on that. Okay, a couple of reader questions. Mm -hmm. These are these are kind of all similar um, and kind of sad, but mm -hmm. I thought we could, they were important ones to deal with. So here is a woman who says this. Recently, I was relaxing and enjoying a bath and a couple of alcoholic drinks at home. I think I drank too much too fast. Anyway, I wasn't feeling well and was unable to walk. My husband helped me to the bed, and that's the last I remember before waking up the next morning. When I woke up, my lower abdomen was achy. I soon realized he had sex with me. I asked him questions about what had happened. He responded with, I took advantage of you. He was very proud of it. He's my husband, so I don't want to call this something that it's not. However, I feel very hurt and violated. I don't know how to feel about this. He did apologize, but I don't know how to move forward. Why would he do this to me and be proud of it? If it would be rape at a frat party, it's rape in your marriage. Yep. Yep. I know she says, I don't want to call it something that it's not, but we need to realize that rape is rape, whether you are married or not. Yep. And when you are passed out, mm -hmm. you are unable to consent. Yep. When you are asleep, you are unable to consent. If you're feeling well and unable to walk. Um, yep. You know, that means that something really went on. Maybe you had less to eat or drink than you thought you had the rest of the day. Maybe the bath was really hot and maybe things just went to your head a lot faster than you're normally used to. Whatever it is, it's very clear this woman was not in a position mm -hmm. to say yes. And the fact that he says, I took advantage of you, it sounds kind of like it was a joke or something. Like, yeah. oh, I took advantage yeah. of you. And the problem is that we don't actually realize that there is rape in marriage. Yeah. I was on a podcast recently where a woman was pushing back at me a little bit for <laughs> the idea that there should be consent in marriage because oh my she gosh. said, once you get married, your body belongs to him. And so consent shouldn't be a thing in marriage. Yeah. And this is something that we saw in a lot of our evangelical bestsellers yeah. over and over again is that they did not have a concept of consent and they really played down marital rape. And so we just want to say very clearly that marital rape is illegal yes in the majority of jurisdictions i know it's illegal in canada it's weird in the u.s because you guys have like 50 different laws for each state and so <laughs> i'm i'm assuming it's illegal in most states if it is not illegal in your then state, maybe that's the kind of thing to email your senator about yes, i don't know what happens in the states I, i'm pretty darn sure it's illegal in australia and new zealand and the uk and yeah. other countries that listen to but us. no matter what there but, are definitely <laughs> places you can go and if this is something that is bothering you you feel violated you feel really hurt talk mm -hmm. to a counselor and frankly it might feel like it's extreme but if you want like talk to a sexual abuse therapist mm -hmm. who has experience in this kind of thing because this is something where if if your husband said the words I took advantage of you and he was proud of it or thought it was a joke or something like that that needs to be dealt with because mm -hmm. that is minimizing sexual yeah. assault and he even called it sexual assault himself yeah. And so that is that is highly problematic. Yeah. And we think that the, the problem is that a lot of people don't realize that there yeah. is rape in marriage. And so men think that they that this is OK for them to do. And it's yeah. not. And this um, might be something where a couple of conversations with a trained therapist in this area can honestly just let you set up some boundaries so that you mm -hmm. feel safe again, because maybe mm -hmm. it is that you're married to someone who is not an ill-willed person, but genuinely has been raised in a very, very male centric sexual culture because there's a lot of those pockets in conservative yeah. evangelicalism. And I'd really recommend just read The Great Sex Rescue together. Yes. We do have a big section on consent and coercion where we deal with all of this stuff. And I think reading that may help him to understand how you feel. Yep. But as always, no book is a substitute for therapy, even ours. Right. Here's another question. Are you ready? Yep. This one's a little bit more generic. I've worked through the orgasm gap 
and sex as an obligation with my husband, but recovering from the pain and betrayal of being used this way has rocked my core. How do we heal and come back together because it hurts badly? Yeah. So here's a woman who says, okay, you know, we've, we've been working on the great sex rescue. We've read the book together. We're really working on helping me orgasm so that it's not just about him. We're working through letting go of the obligation sex message. But the problem is if I felt used for the majority of my marriage, how do I move forward? And I honestly, I have very strong opinions on this that a lot of people might not agree with. But this, I think, is where it comes into God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you have been using your wife sexually with no concern for her pleasure, where she has been a receptacle to ejaculate into for years and years, mm-hmm. frankly, you might go through some sexlessness while she heals from what you have done for her, done to her. And that is not her doing anything to you. It is the repercussions of what you have done to her. And if you are in a marriage where you need to rebuild trust and you need to feel like he's not going to use me anymore, you need to feel that your body is honestly honored and respected, even if it doesn't do what he wants it to do, Mm -hmm. you are allowed to put in boundaries that are what you need to recover from, again, what he has done to you and how he has treated you. We're not just talking about, well, you tried, but orgasm was hard and he felt guilty about it and she felt weird about it. And now they finally figured out the orgasm gap. She's saying that she has had pain and betrayal from being used this way that has rocked her to the core. Mm -hmm. He has damaged her in his heartlessness and how he has used his wife. Mm -hmm. That means there may be some repercussions. And if you are truly hoping for a mutual, satisfying, Christ-centered sex life, Mm -hmm. that might mean that you have to, in essence, pay up a bit. Yeah, and I think that's, and and maybe that's where I want to go with this as well. One of the things that we did find was that 16%, that's one six, not six zero, but one six percent, 16% of women reported that their primary emotion after sex was feeling used. Yeah. You know, for those women, even if you get over this obligation sex mindset, in order to, to create a vibrant marriage, it may not be on her. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's saying is, what do we do at this point? And I think just like when someone has had an affair, yes, the person who was sinned against does need to forgive for sure. But that comes after the person who had the affair has proven themselves trustworthy. And also to be very clear, someone has an affair, you don't have to ever go back to them. No. You can just leave. Yeah. But like if I'm, I'm talking about if you're going to rebuild, if you yes. decided together that you want to move towards rebuilding, Like, yes, the person who sinned against is going to eventually have to forgive, but that really can't be done properly. And I have a whole blog post about this. I'll I'll try to remember to link it. That really can't be done properly until someone has rebuilt trust. Yeah. And I think that's the same here. If in your marriage, it's been really lopsided and someone has been using you, that does need to be rebuilt. Well, like, think about it this way. If your friend kept on borrowing money from you and never paid you back. And they owed you like Mm $10,000. And they come to you and say, you know what? I've been a really horrible friend. I have taken advantage of you for eight years of friendship. And I can't believe this debt that I have accumulated against you. I am so sorry. Let's not do this anymore. Can we be on good terms? And you say, of course, thank you so much for coming to me. I'm so glad. But then you're out for drinks and they haven't paid you back and you're grabbing a coffee and they're like, oh, sorry, I forgot my wallet. Do you mind grabbing me one? Mm -hmm. Now with a normal friendship, you'd say, well, of course, that's not a problem. But Mm -hmm. he hasn't paid you back any of that $10,000 yet. So it's not your job to treat him like a normal friend. So this is a situation where trust needs to be rebuilt. Now, what we did find was that there were a lot of women who felt used and felt the obligation sex message when it really wasn't their husbands who were doing it to them. Mm -hmm. And so if that's you, like a lot of women had so internalized the obligation sex message. And when their husbands realized this, their husbands were the ones to say, hold on a second. That's not what we're doing. (laughs) I never want you to do something you don't want to do. And so, you know, the husband saying that just freed them. But no, no, I will. I will say, I am sorry. I need to jump in. It was not the husband saying that that gave them freedom. It was the husbands proving it to them. Yes. Every single one had husbands who would stop sex in the middle of it if -hmm. they could tell their wife wasn't into it would say I can sense that you don't actually want this right now hun I would rather we wait and have sex tomorrow or even next week than to have Mm -hmm. sex with you while you're feeling you know eh. they actually put their money where their mouth was you know they said I don't want to have sex with you if you're feeling obligated or you're feeling coerced or you're feeling scared Mm -hmm. and then when they sensed that from their wife they didn't just say oh well 
Mm -hmm. I'm at least going to get mine. Yeah. You know, they, they stopped it. Even if it made her mad. Yeah. Because it was his job and he saw it as his job to prove to her that he was in fact the man of integrity and honor and love that she believed him to Mm -hmm. be when they got married. Mm -hmm. And that was what healed it for so many women. And so I think in this situation, what really needs to happen, I I would highly recommend a licensed counselor for them to see. If that's just not possible in your situation, money, whatever, okay. (laughs) But... I do think that this is up to him to rebuild the trust. Yeah. And that might take some time. But you need to feel safe because great sex can only happen when you're able to be vulnerable and you're not able to be vulnerable with someone that you feel has used you and hasn't really understood the gravity of that. Yeah. And so I think what he needs to do is 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 own the gravity of that and own the the pain that he has caused you. Too often we rush forgiveness and we don't actually allow ourselves to feel the depth of the pain that's been done to us. And the person who has done the pain doesn't always allow themselves to feel the depth of the pain they have caused. And it's really important that that is felt. Mm-hmm. in order to get to a healthy place. That doesn't mean you can't get to a healthy place. No, and it doesn't and, mean that you always have to be in that kind of guilty mindset. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. At some point, mm-hmm. you move past it. Yeah. But you have to go through it if you're actually going to have yeah. compassion and speak truthfully about your situation. That really is only possible and a lot easier to do if if the spouse who has used you proves themselves trustworthy and yeah. apologizes over time. Final thing. Um, we have a Patreon Yes, we do. So if you like our research and if you want to get our research out there more. Yeah. And if you like our podcast and you want to support messages like what our podcast says being given on other platforms, we would love if you'd partner with us to get some peer reviewed research out there to get our message disseminated in various other spaces. The Patreon does not pay for this podcast no. or my blog. That's all going to go on as normal as it always has. What the Patreon pays for, yeah, is for Joanna to write some peer reviewed stuff and for us to get into other social media places that can't monetize yeah and appeal to other generations so yes so please help us patreon we will put a link it's bare marriage on patreon and there's extra unfiltered podcasts and lots of other fun things if you join us there and i like to end on a positive thing Mm -hmm. and this is one of the most positive things that's been sent to us in an age yeah it's really lovely this one actually kind of applies to our last it does question yeah and this is this is the appropriate response so let's just read this yes My wife and I grew up hearing that teaching that you describe in your podcasts. My wife came to me one day and told me, I feel like your prostitute that you just get to use. Mm -hmm. I was so taken aback. We love the Lord. We were doing everything we could to have a great marriage. We were taught that in order to have a great marriage, we need to have sex, a lot of sex. And my wife, bless her, never said no to me. She made herself available to me in the middle of the day sometimes while the kids were all occupied. I never really took into consideration how this would make her feel. I thought it really was all about my release. Mm -hmm. I am crying as I write this because of the heartache I now feel for my wife. It was never about her. It was never her wishes or her pleasure. We were marching to the beat of my sex drive that never once seemed to be content. We would have intercourse on Monday, but if she needed time to herself Tuesday, I reacted as though she did not love me. I would get angry. I would use mean words. I'm in tears still. I would accuse her. We were on the hidden sexless marriage path and didn't even know it. And anyone who's interested about that, seriously, check out The Great Sex Rescue. There was a really interesting stat there for hidden sexless marriages. Yeah. Yeah. And I was soon to graduate into a sexless marriage for myself. I regret to confess that even when she was on her period or recovering postpartum, I would use the advice from sheet music and request stimulation for my release. This was so wrong of me. I thought that my wife was here sent by God as a reward for my faithfulness to him and that he sent her to me so that I could be happy. I never realized how awful this must be to live with. I never thought that she can love me and I can love her and she can take three months to recover from a baby and that's okay. I thought that any no was in essence a rejection of me in our marriage. I can see all these things now because one day a year or so ago, my wife stumbled on your Facebook page. We read your letter to focus on the family. And at the time I was in a statistics class for college and saw that you didn't just have data, you had data, a lot of it. (laughs) And they were simply ignoring you. This was a big concern to us because we spent most of our engagement listening to podcasts at a cafe and talking about them in an effort to remain pure in our relationship. And we did learn a lot. As we followed along, I began to see we have a problem. Then a couple of months ago, as the Lord was softening my heart, my wife said those words to me, I feel like your prostitute. 
I prayed about it and asked the Lord to help me. Then a beam of light came through to me in the form of your podcast, Duty Sex Isn't Sexy. That impacted me so deeply because it was that one that I realized, oh, my wife is not enjoying sex. This, of course, was a big problem for me. My wife and I have been listening to all your blogs and podcasts about orgasms and sex that we can. (laughs) One thing we wish that we would have heard more of in our premarital counseling is how she can be stimulated instead of just, well, stick it in there and consummates the marriage. (laughs) Not the exact words, but that was the essence of it. We reflected recently on our honeymoon and realized that my wife, who was raised on purity culture, dealt with vaginismus and we were not able to have sex for a couple of days into our honeymoon. I have been doing a lot of reflecting and came to this conclusion. I feel that your family and the work you are doing saved my marriage. I cannot thank you enough. I feel so fortunate to have the Lord correct me through your work, your daughter's rants. That's me. And your husband's gentleness. Please don't ever stop your work. Husbands, especially Christian husbands who were raised on the purity message, need to hear this. There is so much wrong with how conservative Christianity has approached sex and pleasure for women. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Sheila. Thank you for showing me what it means to be a good husband. I realize now that I am more attentive to my wife in the bedroom. I am more attentive to her overall. Yes. I cannot stop crying because of how fortunate and thankful I feel for this. My children get to grow up now in an environment where mom and dad really do like each other and like being around each other. Yeah. And that's it, right? And that's that's the thing. If you're in a marriage where you've been doing it wrong for so long, you aren't doomed to do it wrong forever. Yep. You're allowed to change your mind. Yep. You're allowed to ask for forgiveness and you're allowed to move forward. And that's the beauty of the cross. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of Christ. And that is the gospel. And that is the beauty of Easter. Yeah. Coming up this weekend. It looked like all hope was lost on Friday, but on Sunday we get the resurrection. Yeah. And the beauty of the resurrection is that Jesus lives and he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside us and transform us. And I think God so wants to transform marriages and he has the power to transform marriages. And so I just encourage people not to lose hope. (laughs) And to not resist the transformation. Because the transformation doesn't feel good all the time. Yep. But it's always worth it. Yep. And so we wish all of you a happy Easter. We hope that it's a wonderful time of reflection mm-hmm. and celebration of new life this weekend. And we will see you back on the blog next week as we look into sex advice through the ages. And we hope that as you are exploring new life and feeling transformed in this season of your life, that even the great sex rescue could play a part of that. And so we are glad that you've joined us and we will see you here next week again for another Bear Marriage podcast. Bye.